Welcome back to Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks, the cybersecurity podcast that tackles the vendor-customer relationship. I'm George K. with the vendor side. And I'm George A., a Chief Information Security Officer. And today, we are calling it the flamethrower episode. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of stuff is going down. A lot of stuff in our inbox. We got to release some steam. And this is the place we're going to do it. So... Uh, George, where do you want to start this week? Well, I think it's pretty hard to kind of not begin with the elephant in the room. Another round of Fang layoffs, brother. Another big layoff yeah. coming from Google this week and Microsoft. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. Uh, my feed is filled with Amazon, uh, Google layoff notices. Um, across a lot of sectors, a lot of recruiting, a lot of ad services, um, but also uh, some network folks. And I would say this, I would say the attitude has been pretty good. I think people are understandably uh, shocked, but that they are taking stock and um, they themselves look like they're looking forward to the next opportunity, but it is very hard to ignore. If you work in tech, it just feels like a lot. And this on the back of record profits, Microsoft of course had stellar timing announcing layoffs after a sting concert for 50 execs in Davos. That's uh, that's a little hard to swallow. I understand that gig was probably booked a year in advance, but still, it's not a good look. So I, I think there's, you know, there's a few things that have to be considered, and, and you kind of you hit the main point in the head, which is that you know something has to be called out for the fact that these organizations are having record revenue years with extremely high percentage uh, numbers when it comes to their gross margins, and they're still laying off droves of people, you know, and and. You know, I don't want to get into like a, a Friedman-based lesson review on economic methodologies, but I just think that, you know, at some point we are, we've dehumanized the industry and the approach to, to how we want to protect and develop these organizations. Um, we've dehumanized it to such a degree that we forget about the impacts of what the decisions are. And I bring up even another kind of layer to this because we were talking about fangs kind of before we started this conversation. But you know, we we both work in small start small startups, medium sized organizations, that kind of thing. Those mm -hmm. are the world leading headline groups, right? All those folks who have been given their pink slips at those fang companies, they all have very handsome severance packages. I was reading about rumors about you know six month compensation, full benefits. Like they're still. They have a runway to kind of figure their lives out, right? As, as for sure, really unfortunate as it is. If you're a, a startup or a medium sized software company and that's already, you know, kind of suffering from, let's say, a tough revenue year and that's what's actually causing it, um, you're, you're walking away with nothing. Like, those are the people right. that I feel for, man. And, and you know, are, how do we, how can we be a more welcoming industry if we've suddenly turned into such a high risk one? For no, you know, sustainable reason. Well, what do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I will say this. Um, the generosity with which 
some people have jumped into the fray, people who are gainfully employed right now and are saying, hey, seeing these layoffs, put a hand up if you uh, need something or, hey, I saw the layoffs. We're hiring. I saw a man, uh, Justin Pagano, say we're growing sustainably which I thought was a critical call out, right? Because we see a lot of this backpedaling of we grew too fast, we hired too fast. Um, I like that. I like that. I also uh, call out Eric Block also doing a lot of uh, Yeoman's work in connecting people inside of his network who are hiring to a lot of these people who have who've gotten uh, the pink slip. So I see a community that really wants to help and um, I, d- I don't know what to do about that from a corporate governance perspective, but the boots on the ground are putting their hands out and trying to lift people up. Yeah, like, I, I would agree with that. Like I've seen a lot of really good threads by a lot of different folks. Um, I know like some people consider it a little bit controversial, but uh, that uh, Naomi Buckwalter there, she's always posting up about mm-hmm. open jobs. Uh, and she's always trying to address kind of the issues with technical writers and how they're making these job profiles way too complicated yeah, for, for sure. people they're actually trying to hire. Um, and I see other people sometimes, you know, on Mastodon kind of posting up positions as well. I think, you know, it, we've talked about this in past episodes when we brought on, you know, certain sales folks. And I, and I think Erica really, and actually Nico as well, too, she came to agree on this point. The VC-driven culture that drives the foundation of our industry, man. I think it's a massive problem. I think this this uh, obsessive need for an unrealistic amount of growth year over year, you know, it just, it creates this manic franticness to, it, it's at the core of everything we've talked about on our show, man. These BDRs that do all these annoying, annoying mm-hmm. terrible things. All this shit comes from an obscene amount of pressure that they face to make money, make money right away. And it doesn't matter if you broke a record yesterday, it's not good enough for today. So in this kind of mentality, like I feel terrible for those people, but I also just think like it's become just an accepted risk in the game. And you're almost deluding yourself if you're not seeing kind of like the the dark underbelly of what working in this industry is. Yeah, I mean, some of it's VC, some of it's PE, but yeah, the, it's ex, it's expectations, right? And I think we're probably overdue for that correction in terms of uh, not only valuations, but correction in terms of what's attainable and what's desirable, right? I think sustainable growth, sustainable sales, large uh, customer bases, you know, are you are you measuring on net new logos or are you measuring on churn? Are you measuring on, you know, there are different metrics that you can weight differently. I would say a company that can sell and then hold on to customers year over year and or upsell, right? That's evidence of a deepening relationship versus, you know, go wide and get as many um, acquaintances as possible. Yeah, I think honestly, that's kind of, what I look for even now from my current position when I'm dealing with a, a you know BDR or even if I've gone to the point where I'm looking at the inside salesperson is do they have the patience? And by that, it's not just them as, as a person in their nature. It's has their organization giving them the runway necessary for this entire process to kind of work through its ebbs and flows, right? Because obviously you're going to buy something. The 
more expensive it is, the more parts of the infrastructure mm. that it touches, the more stakeholder alignment there has to be. And I think every once in a while, I deal with like a relatively new sales pro who um, really, really thinks that as an executive, you just have some godlike power that you can just buy things because <laughs> you want them. And I'm like, dude, I don't like I. A lot of things, like especially if you're trying to do this the right way and you're trying to really, you know, break silos and ensure that people are bought into the program, it's a lot of politics and negotiations and like being like, okay, cool, like we might have to trade off this to get this today, but then we'll get this in a couple quarters mm-hmm. or whatever it is, right? Like, especially when it comes to procurement. So if you're trying to play the game properly and then you're dealing with these sales folks, the more impatient, the more aggressive they are it more speaks to the weakness potentially of their own organization because, you know, clearly underscoring whatever it is that they're showing people either through their numbers or through their social events or their marketing events, that might be one thing. But if underneath the surface, there's a major financial risk, they can't hit certain benchmarks, right? And this whole thing's a house of cards mm-hmm. is going to fall apart on itself. If they don't make certain revenue markers, well, then that's, you're going to see that desperation. It's like, uh, like going to a bar and, you know, if you're, if you're too thirsty, women will smell that from a mile away. <laughs> well, I was, I was going to say, um, you mentioned, I think it was with Dave and Madi, you know, if for an organization of your size, if you're trying to sell me something that's a quarter million dollars, that's going to take a lot of, uh, buy-in and you may even want it. But hey, be patient because I got to work. And I think that was something that stuck out to me is that when you look at the accounts that you're mapping to, do you have a sense of proportion, right? Like on paper, you're like, I got this list, but that list is really like a, a very different kind of pie chart. Like if it's a software development firm that has X amount in revenue, this is the threshold at which point you're going to start to hit a friction point and you're going to have to be patient and know how to navigate that versus like a quarter million dollars is not a lot for like a, you know, a fortune 500 company. I still don't think anyone's going to cut you a check for a quarter million dollars without enough due diligence. But, you know, I, I get that that might move a little faster. But you know, what's funny is I look at it then and it changes my role as a security leader. And I, I'm not the only mm-hmm. one. I know there's other guys who are in my seat as well. Who do the same thing. When you look at security and you try to reframe it as a business enabler, that means mm-hmm. I also try to do what I can to contribute on the revenue front, especially like being the right. corporate security guy. I don't have to worry about servicing clients. Um, I'm more I'm like, okay, cool. So how can we help folks in the dev side of the house develop new components, new modules, new pieces of software that are secure, and that also have some additional perspective outside of their usual contribution bubble? You know, thinking about the CI/CD pipeline. Mm-hmm. And if we yep. can provide that extra contribution and extra perspective, we make things more secure from the start. But then also, you know, we're we're maybe shedding some light that's different because we're looking at the problem or whatever it is we're trying to build from a different viewpoint. It just it, it helps the ship move forward in the right direction. And that's I, I think if you're doing security correctly, if you're doing sales correctly, if you have a product based organization, you should all be contributing to the growth and to the health of that vision and mission. I think that's kind of what it drives if you're doing it correctly. But Mm -hmm. I think a lot of folks, you know, they see the potential for certain numbers that they could potentially earn. 
and they get real selfish about how they conduct themselves. If you get enough people doing that in an organization, it really starts to reflect in how that organization functions, particularly externally. Yeah, I think that's a good segue into visiting some of the hot shit that we got in our inboxes. Oh, correct. All right. So this was my favorite. I'm going to I'm going to highlight this. I get a lot of inbound stuff in uh, LinkedIn lately, which is real sweet. Um, (laughs) Yeah, some of it's still getting through, but I like being able to move it to other. But this is the one that I got. And you know it because we share this stuff all the time. But so here's the subject line. New way to increase sales for bare knuckles and brass tacks. I can't even read it without laughing. Um, I visited bare knuckles and brass tacks LinkedIn profile and learned that I could find your prospects on LinkedIn. Okay, sentence construction makes no sense. Using our tool, you can build a list of 300 potential prospects each day along with their business email address and phone numbers. Our new following features are things you can't get from anywhere else. Anyway, dude, it's a podcast. Like, what are you doing? What? Like, I actually, so normally I move these things to other or I block it. I ignore it. I delete it. I actually replied. I said, do you know what bare knuckles and brass tacks does? Radio silence. Yeah. (laughs) got no response so i'm just gonna say here's your cold outreach your prospect aka moi responded you did not respond which i mean let's again then go back to that you just scraped a whole bunch of stuff i am a quote-unquote co-founder of this podcast please tell me what leads you're going to deliver that helps my business which is a passion project that you and i record <laughs> on sunday evenings like the basics man like so here's here's just yeah like uh, maybe they were using like a script writing tool or chat gpt mm -hmm, type thing but it's like i don't know in any normal conversation this is always like it's if i was like coaching a group of like black hatters who are setting up a fishing campaign the first thing i would do is like are we targeting the english language english language audience yes okay let's let's go through the common speak and not make it so weird. It looks like it's a typo, right? So I think, like, first of all, a normal person would just be like, hey, so that show that you started with your friend, like, no one would ever just call you a co-founder of the podcast. That is the weirdest yeah, I sound see you're a co-founder of, yeah, it's real robotic. <laughs> That's super weird, yeah. And then outside of that, it reminds me of the ones I get, which I get a, a variation of the same type of message, and it's typically a LinkedIn message. And it's like, I see that you're the co-founder of Bear Knuckles Brass Tats podcast. I can help you generate leads. I remember I showed you that one. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like I'm like our marketing specialist. Software. I'm like, okay. So you see the LinkedIn page for the podcast, but you clearly didn't read the profiles because you would know that one of the partners in the podcast is a marketing professional. So why would a podcast owned and operated <laughs> by a marketing professional, why would he then go seek an external marketing professional? <laughs> like, it's just like, I'm like, that's yeah. so stupid. It's not even yeah. the fuck. <laughs> it is super easy to clown on these clowns, but mm. uh, 
let's let me i did when i was thinking about talking about this tonight i did want to just take a step back and break it down okay so i think we know the obvious the obvious is you don't know what this quote unquote business does right so but there are serious consequences to that right so let's analogize it to cyber i'm going to reach out to george you know and say this new EDR solution can do X, Y, Z, this, whatever, whatever, whatever. If it is clear from the outset that I do not fundamentally understand the business of your organization, like let's say I'm treating you like you're a B2B software provider, or I'm treating you like I have this form, right? Whatever, your enterprise manufacturing, whatever. One, it doesn't make you feel warm and fuzzy. You're like, okay, you're treating me like a number. And then like, where does the relationship go from there? From the very first step, there is, there's an icky feeling. There's a lack of trust and you have communicated you, the person doing the outreach. I don't give a flying fuck who you are, but I have this form that I want you to say yes to. And then that's going to help me make us. It's not sustainable with the amount of times that I've heard CISOs communicate to one another on these Slack channels, which feels like the elephant graveyard. Like it's the thing that everyone knows is a thing, but you know, no one on the vendor side can see. Why would you risk that? Cause now your name is just getting bandied about as you know, this is hilarious. Look at this clown. I'm never going to call this person again. Right. Yeah. That's kind of like- not a sustainable business model. That's that's what trips me out about it, but it's always typically what really surprises me is when it's, it comes from an otherwise reputable enterprise level firm, like mm-hmm. like something the size of a CrowdStrike or whatever per se. And it's that's yeah. not saying anything against CrowdStrike. Love CrowdStrike, they're great. I'm on a panel with one of their people, so love CrowdStrike. Don't worry. Um, but something like a, a supplier to that size, you would be very surprised if like you're getting some real shitty low-ball BDR attempt just trying to cold open you with something like, completely impersonal like that. Like, okay, this is... Mm-hmm. It's basically unprofessional. So you're like, okay, this is Bush League. I don't understand what's going on, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So whenever I get those, I think it's just like there are all these little companies, quote-unquote, that really seem to emerge out of nowhere that have no real other web presence. You've never heard of before. But then they're claiming that they have this like miraculous solution. And then they'll cite some random like, we're on the Forbes technology top 10 or some shit. And you're like, okay, like I'm not going to spend my time Googling this thing to verify whether that's true or not. (laughs) I just, I haven't heard of you. So you're full of shit. I I go to conferences. Like I go to Black Hat quite regularly. I'm going to go to RSA this year. I'm going to go to Black Hat this year. If I haven't heard of you at either of those two shows, you can't immediately show me like a tangible demo of your software, whatever your product is, you're full of shit. Like, I'm sorry, it's not yeah. worth it. So I, I think, yeah, yeah. again, this goes back to like, they have to stop with this cheap dollar scam shit and people on the client side have to stop falling for it because someone has to be falling for it for them to be continuing to do this, no? I mean, I, I guess there's some kind of math that makes them think that it's working in their favor, even if it's like 1%. But that's the thing is when you get so far in the weeds, you're like, I improved my open rate from 
say 1% to 1.5%. And then that feels like you've, you know, lassoed the moon. Um, I do want to point out that this, the outreach that I read out loud came to me via somebody who is title is lead generation specialist at this company. And that is a, a Tamil surname on that person, right? So that is an Indian name, uh, Tamil to be specific. It's this form. If I read all the way to the bottom, it is signed Blake. So <laughs> I'm just going to be like, mm, okay, let's, let's, uh, I don't know what that is, but that's not a way to set your, uh, set your best foot forward. I will say it again. If somebody answers you, whether it's on LinkedIn, whether it's, uh, they're going to take the time of day from you at a in-person conference, I would like everyone on the vendor side to recognize that is an opportunity not to sell. That is an opportunity to learn more, right? Be curious, right? Because if you learn more about their business, you might be able to learn where you can add value and articulate that value in a way that doesn't feel so ham-fisted. But you have to be curious. You got to like want to know about the business. Yeah, it speaks to something else that we share between each other, um, and it's kind of, uh, you know, one from the Bad BDR books, but that, that individual kind of talked about um, some sales folks who had used social engineering tactics to essentially find his wife's contact information, and they were trying to oh, yes. reach out to him through his wife. Yeah, they used, I, like, OSINT to find his wife's phone number. <laughs> like, I'm just... Man, that is offensive to a like level of like like I I drop gloves with someone like in, in it's person, pathological like they did that it's yeah, pathological it's, you were you're threatening my home yeah that's how I look at it I will tell listeners we are gonna have uh, that infosec engineer on the show I did reach out I was like this is a hundred percent wrong but we want you to share your experience. So we'll, we'll get into that. But yes, for sure, if your first move is to creep out your prospect, <laughs> good luck making your numbers because that is not going anywhere anytime soon. And now that dude blasted you uh, on LinkedIn and ain't no one going to touch you with a 10-foot pole. So again, yeah, your the entire is industry is talking about that right now, by the way. Like that's... That that had a lot more reach than maybe Buddy thought it would. Yeah, I think it did for sure. <laughs> so here's here's a question um, to you, by the way. I, I wanted to, to touch on this one for the episode. Chat GPT, right? So there's reports that have come mm -hmm. out that it just passed uh, a Wharton School uh, MBA confirmation exam. Ooh, right? I didn't see that one. I've I've tried to I've tried to slow my role in the chat GPT news. I've been a little bit obsessed lately, but yes, I did not yeah. know that, but that's financial times came out with the article. You can Google it, look it up there. But given that it just proved enough competence as a program to, to certify mm -hmm. the past, 
graduate level, uh, quite prestigious uh, business school certification. What does that mean for our industry? And what does that mean for like humanity at large in terms of how we educate people from elementary onto post-secondary and in the professional world? Like, is this the trickling of a dam that's about to break and wash away kind of like society as we know it? And we're about to step <laughs> into kind of that, that next eon in the human existence. I got so many thoughts about ChatGPT that it would take up hours in this podcast. But I, so let me let me let me condense this. So okay. for listeners, I come from an anthropology background. So what I'm thinking about is not so much like the machine learning model, which I do think about, but I'm thinking about like from a humanist perspective. So to your point, very fascinating interview with a teacher out in Oregon. I want to say her name is Sherry Shields. She adopted ChatGPT pretty early on after testing it and has been using it in the classroom as a teaching tool. So she can feed student essays into it to get early feedback. So essentially one-to-one personalized feedback. Students can, she's been training them on how to use prompts to get like outlines, but they ultimately have to craft the work in the classroom in person, right? So I think we're probably gonna move. It's gonna change kind of the model. But I don't think, you know, teachers haven't been dealing with plagiarism since like the internet. I'm sure the first days of like, oh, I could just Google this obscure poem and try to pass it off as my, you know, that's, you know, teachers are trying to spot that. Here's my larger concern. One, I I have personally crafted a whole bunch of language-based phishing emails in multiple languages using chat GPT just to test it. So there's that. That's obvious, I think. The less obvious thing is we as a society are talking about what will chat GPT change looking outward, right? Will it, it's going to change college writing. It's going to change student essays. It's going to change novel writing, whatever. We are not talking about how it will change us because if more and more prose or emails or communications start being generated using these large language models and that language becomes more pervasive, our reading of it becomes more commonplace. So one, it becomes, today we can spot kind of the difference. Some of us feel like we're confident that we can spot that difference. 10 years from now, that is not going to be the case because it's going to be the norm. So I think that's, I think in terms of upskilling, that's, that's a problem. I also think it's going to take machine on machine uh, defense. You know, you're not I mean, there's been talk about, like, should it watermark the output so that, you know, some other defense structure could recognize that? Um, I mean, that's kind of promising, but that's no guarantee. But I definitely think the old security and awareness phishing simulation training is out the door. It's, it's going to have to become more robust in a different way. Yeah, I mean, you're going to you're gonna have to teach... Um... How to, how to think security, essentially. You have to rewire people's thinking, which means that they're going to have to implement that style of, like, sec DevOps thinking at, like, mm-hmm. you know, elementary school coding level. Right? It's always going to have to yeah. be a thing beating your head. Um, I think, you know, from an artist standpoint, I know a lot of uh, visual visual artists have been very upset about what some of these yep. AI programs have been doing with their work. Um 
but you know, I, I look at the integration of technology. So I look at something like Neuralink and what some of the things they've mm. been talking about it being capable of doing. And when you implement this kind of language generative service, or you implement services where we're looking at holograms or we're seeing some of the VR things, like I, I, I wonder if we eventually reach a point where we can just disconnect from this reality altogether through a headset or through an implant, right? I mean, there are, there are a number of people who hope to make a lot of money by you doing <laughs> <laughs> But then here's the bigger question, right? Given what we're doing here, how the hell do we secure that? How do we, how do we prevent the brain virus infecting all of humanity? Yeah. I mean, we are certainly at an inflection point in two different ways. One, I think the technology is gaining on us faster than we planned. I think we all thought like, oh, I'll have a few more years to think about the policy or whatever. No, that time is now. And we need to ask those questions now. Like you brought up artists whose work has been scraped and fed into these models without their consent. We have laws about copyright. We have laws about licensing. That jurisprudence is very rapidly falling behind what the technology can do. Um, and then I also think our policy makers, like if you, you're in Canada, I'm in the U S I remember the famously awful hearings with Mark Zuckerberg when people were essentially like, how does the internet work? Like, do you think lawmakers today understand what a large language model is or even how it works? Or do they think it's magic? Like that's a problem, right? That they, they don't understand how the tech works. I am of the opinion that any of us who work in tech that vaguely touches AI, one, you should learn about it. And two, you should demystify it for all of your friends and family, right? Like as quickly as possible so that they know that chat GPT is not right all the time. And it's a really statistically accurate autocomplete engine. Like that's, that's its function. It's like, predict the next text with high fidelity fed on a massive amount of data. Um, so I think there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and I hope all of us are up to the task of doing it. Well, that's, and that's kind of the whole point, right? We're like, we're looking kind of where these technologies are going. And I think to myself, like, Hey, let's say I want to try to innovate the next type of generation for a defensive technology or right? for cyber mm -hmm. security technology. You kind of have to look at it like, I don't want to build just the next flavor of a thing that's already been replicated a bajillion times, right? And I'm thinking of like the XDRs, yeah. right? I'm, yeah. I'm thinking like, okay, what, what actually represents disruptive technology now? And I don't think anything in the conventional network plane is really going to be it anymore. Mm. I think we've kind of yes, reached that you plateau. Are right. mm -hmm. So now we have to look at the human machine interface because that's the next frontier of threat vectors yeah if i had to look in the crystal ball it's less the complexity of the network plane as you said and more either the complexity of the human risk factor or compute power and i don't yeah, want to overplay quantum but it's compute power that has to be Dude, reckoned with why have we not had mike mclaughlin on here yet man seriously <laughs> yeah <laughs> Shout well, I think because Mike. we didn't start out, we didn't start out as a policy podcast. Ugh.
Well, this is, the, this is actually, um, this is really fun. This is one of the first times we've actually sat down and just like whiteboarded or just threw darts in the wall of all these different things that we read every day for the last couple of months. And there's just not enough time to consume and think about any of it or what the fuck any of this means. No, yeah, you really need a lot of space to think about it. And what's really harrowing is that you and I and ideally listeners of this show, especially the sellers, I hope, are paying attention and you're like neck deep in it every day. And meanwhile, I shut off the workstation and I go talk to people on the block and they're like, oh yeah, so like AI. And you're like, oh my God, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And you don't know, <laughs> like you have no idea. Like all my texts to you could be chat GPT generated and you wouldn't know. <laughs> like, Dude, so I'm like, yeah, I'm obviously like, I, we all have hobbies and stuff to do outside of this, outside of work. So I'm on a fight team. Some of my teammates, they're like in like secondary school. And they're like, I'm in business school, man. I want to get into the tech world. And it's like, you're in tech. And they ask you questions about it. And you're like, these are really, really smart guys that are academically mm -hmm. top shelf dudes who are doing something that's really physically hard too. So like they're top shelf people. And like you said, they have no real concept of like how this game, how this industry works, how the money in this thing works and how there are so many market-based influences that drive what we can and can't do in terms of innovation. Because, you know, mm -hmm. there's a difference between what human beings are probably capable of innovating and implementing now versus what market desire is going to allow to happen. And that kind of gets like similarly in policy and politics. What does your political capital allow versus like, hey, what would actually be sound policy, like AKA public health care? Just throw that mm -hmm. out there. Right. Well, and I, I think when you were saying about, you know, what would be the next thing that you invent, right? There are two paths. Either you look at the market and you're like, I can design a better EDR. Yeah. You can, know, you can innovate on something that's out there or like, I'm going to blow Casby out of the water because I got this new way of uh, brokering. <laughs> I couldn't even get through that sentence. Um, yeah. Or you're like, holy hell, what's on the horizon two years from now? Now, yeah. maybe this circles back around to your what you were saying about funding, because it's it might be harder to get some funding to develop that because you can't sell it today. Like the market's not even there yet, yeah. you know, in terms of the realization of or it's not even a budget line item. Like try if you're out there, are you going to sell like quantum encryption? Do people even I mean, people are talking about it, but it's not a thing that's baked into budgets. Well, I think if you're going to be an innovator now, unless you're backed by some big amount of money or you're already walking into it with full pockets, you essentially have to bootstrap services or resell technologies mm -hmm. or go through all those different type of channel avenues to build enough equity to have an innovation or R&D capability. But the fact is you're always going to have to, again, unless you're blessed with that money, you're going to have to play the make money today game in order to be able to afford the innovation game of tomorrow. That's the entire right. challenge of it. Because trying to make that money today, dude, it's fucking exhausting. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. Man, I got a lot of thoughts, but uh, not a lot of time to, to <laughs> No, to, it's to, all to good. Trace it. Yeah. Um, cool. So any closing thoughts here? Otherwise, I feel like we got to save some. And it's not like we don't have any powder left. Um. Honestly, like 
I just hope people had a good holiday season. I hope our listeners are back at her and the folks who uh, work at some of those fang organizations, we hope you were unaffected. And if you were, um, you know, Godspeed, man. <laughs> It'll all be okay. Uh, we are thinking of you guys. That's why we kind of talked about it. Uh, but, George, I'm looking forward to an exciting 2023 with you, my man. I'm going to see Chris Roberts next week, so I'll be sure to say hi to him for you. Absolutely. It's just going to be off the chain. Um, all right, gang. That's all the time we got for today. Thanks for tuning in. Subscribe to Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks. Episodes are dropping every other week. We hope to change that soon, but we will see you next time.